Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. All right, well, uh, we're in the letter of Jude. Let me give you a quick recap. What I've been doing is reading all the verses and then kind of recapping and then highlighting the verses where we're at. We've actually, uh, I'm going to do a little different this morning. We've already covered the first 11 verses, and so I'm just going to recap those 11 verses, and we'll start off in verse 12 um, today. But in verses 1 and 2, Jude kind of gives his introduction. If you're following along in your Bible, you can see that in verses 1 and 2, he just introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James. And then he addresses his audience. He says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And I always love emphasizing that those are three powerful ways to describe you and I as Christians. Called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. I, I, I always want to highlight those when we come across them because that's a beautiful way to address the saints. And it says then in, in verse 2, uh, he goes on to speak. He speaks this, this blessing over them, kind of gives this benediction. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so there's his introduction in verses 1 and 2. Then in verse, verses 3 and 4, he kind of gets to the point of why he's writing. He kind of lays out the reason for his letter. He says, I wanted to write to you uh, just a letter about our common salvation, but I, I was, felt compressed. I found it necessary to write to you. Uh, for what reason? He says, to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then in verse 4, he tells us why. He says, because certain people have crept in unnoticed who are perverting the grace of God into sensuality and denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, people have crept in among you who are teaching things that are twisting the truth and they're perverting the grace of God into something that it's not ever intended to be. And then... Based off of that, so that's his reason for writing, hey, contend for the faith because people have crept in among you that are teaching false things. And then he, he just dives into seven Old Testament examples of others who did similar things, okay, in the Old Testament. He gives seven examples of people who had twisted the truth or caused people, you know, the people of God to enter into unbelief uh, to their own judgment, leading people away from the truth. And he gives those seven examples. He talks about the nation of Israel, and he talks about fallen angels, and he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and false prophets and Cain and Balaam and Korah. He just lays all those seven examples out, and they're all intense uh, examples with direct, present-day, relevant application for all of us. And so that's what we've been plowing through the last several weeks. That takes us up through verse 11. So he's just finished these seven examples. Last week, we looked at those three together, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And today, uh, we're going to start at verse 12. We're going to read verses 12 through 16, and then we'll pray and dive in. He goes on to describe these people, and he says this, starting in verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. 
It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would open up your word to us this morning, that you would give us understanding of what it is that you want to say to us and what it is you're saying through this letter of Jude. And uh, Lord, help us to take it into our minds, into our hearts, and that it would produce fruit and, and life and heart transformation for us, Father God, that we would be challenged where we need to be challenged, encouraged where we need to be encouraged, and stirred up when we need to be and stirred up by your word, Father God. And so I just pray that you would do that work now in this space and this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so after giving these seven Old Testament examples of those who kind of twisted the truth, perverted the grace of God, and caused others to enter into unbelief to their own destruction, Jude now gives a handful of like vivid images these word pictures, many of them from the world of nature, to illustrate the character and ultimate destiny of these false prophets. You get the idea, as if we didn't already have it, that Jude does not have a high opinion of these false teachers, these false prophets. He said, he said they're just like the Israelites who entered into unbelief and faced judgment. They're just like fallen angels. They're just like Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, he goes on and on. And after giving seven examples, now he gives seven kind of vivid word pictures or illustrations of the character and ultimate destiny of these people. And like we said, many of these examples or illustrations come from the world of nature. Um, or as James Moffat put it in his commentary, he said, sky, land, and sea are ransacked for illustrations of the character of these men. So Jude just looks around and he goes, you know what? Not only are they like these old stories in the Old Testament, they're they're like this, and they're like that. He's looking at the world of nature and saying, they're just like that, and they're just like this. So there's seven descriptions I want us to look at, uh, and let's examine them one by one. He describes them as, number one, hidden reefs. Hidden reefs. You see that there in verse 12? He says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Well, first of all, what is the love feast, right? Like we... We don't really use that language anymore. Like, I'm at work like, hey, bro, you should really come with me to the love feast this weekend. <laughs> you know? Like, we don't do that, right? Hey, you got any plans this weekend? No? All right. You, me, love feast. <laughs> yeah. So, it doesn't work, right? So, when we read something like that, oh, hidden reefs at your love feast, like the love feast was actually a thing. Judah's talking about a thing that was a feature of the early church. It was one of the earliest features of the church. It was also known as the agape, okay? And what it was was a weekly gathering of Christians on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, where they would share a meal and enjoy each other's company. Basically, they would hang out and grub, right? It was like a potluck or barbecue type thing. And, and, and really, it was people in each little house church would all just come together and bring something to share and they would do this to celebrate their union with Christ and with one another, okay? So think about, this is actually a great picture of communion. So we think of communion now as like the little, you know, wafer of bread and a 
small cup, but the communion meal was a, was a meal back in the day, right? It was coming together and feasting together and breaking bread. That was sharing a meal and, and, and having a drink and enjoying celebrating their union with, with Christ and their union with one another. That's where we get the word. Communion, common union, our common union with Christ. And so they would come together and just eat good food and everybody would bring something to share and they would celebrate God and each other and man, we're a family. It was like a family potluck or get together, okay? Which makes sense because, and I heard somebody say this this last week, which is really good because I often say, well, the church is like a family when you read that. And I, and I read this thing that convicted me but also encouraged me. I thought, yeah, that's right. Somebody, and I think it must have been on Facebook, they're like, the church is not like a family. The church is a family. The church is a family. The church is the only eternal family. And, and so it makes sense. It's what families do. Families get together and eat food and hang out and have fun and celebrate. And so this is what the love feast was. This, this is very common what the, what the service was, you know? There would be teaching at times, but a lot of times it was just coming together and sharing food and, man, isn't our God good and encouraging one another in the Lord and enjoying each other. And uh, so that's what the love feast was. Now, obviously, everybody brings something that's potluck kind of style, but obviously some could bring a lot and others could bring very little or even nothing, okay, just because of their means at the time. In fact, for many of the poor among them or even the slaves among them, it was the only decent meal that they would eat all week. And it was one of the ways that the family of faith provided for those in need. And so... But what we see in scripture is that very soon the love feast kind of started to go wrong. And we see this in the Corinthian church when Paul has to write to them and bring some correction to them because they'd started to kind of divide into cliques and some were eating too much. They were like gorging themselves and getting drunk on wine while others had nothing to eat and were starving and sick. And he's like, You've missed the point of agape. You've missed the point of love. You've missed the point of fellowship. If some of you are coming and gorging yourselves while others among you haven't had a good meal all week, they're starving and they're sick and there's nothing left for them. You've ceased to be loving. This is no longer a love feast. This is, so Paul's bringing that correction to the Corinthian church. And now Jude here is saying that, that there are people in the love feast, he says, who he calls hidden reefs. He says, these people, these false teachers, these false prophets, they're like hidden reefs at your love feasts. So switch analogies. Now, what is a hidden reef? So think of just what that would be. So that would imagine you're tooling around in a boat, right? And and you will come across a submerged or half-submerged rock on which a ship or boat could easily be wrecked. You didn't see it. It was hidden. It was a hidden reef, okay? Okay. Tragedy happened a few years ago with, uh, with uh, a pastor in Orange County who we uh, know and, and love. Um, I don't know them very well personally, but my pastor did and does. And he, had a, he, would, he was into spearfishing, and he would go off the coast of like Catalina and things like that, and they would go dive and do their thing. And they had a really tragic, bad accident one day. They ran, they were just going in the boat, and they hit something underground, they didn't realize how kind of shallow things had come, and there was, and I don't know if it was the ground just rose up or it was just a hidden reef, but that idea that was very, very um, devastating and a nearly fatal accident for him. Praise God, he recovered and is preaching the word of God, still pastoring and leading that church. Um, we thank God for that, but it was a devastating, nearly fatal accident that was caused by 
hidden reef, right? And, uh, or something that, that emulates at least that idea, right? They're going along in a boat, something underneath the surface that could shipwreck this whole thing. And so what Jude is saying by using the analogy, he says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts. He's saying that the lies that these false prophets are spreading are threatening to shipwreck the fellowship of the church, to divide people and to cause destruction. And that's what false teaching does. False teaching always divides the church and leaves many casualties in its wake. Now notice again, these people aren't immediately obvious. We covered this a few weeks ago, but but these people are at the love feast, okay? They're, They're like submerged rocks. They're beneath the surface. They, it says they feast with you. I, I, I thought of when I was putting this together, I thought of, man, Judas was, Judas was at the table with Jesus, ministering with Jesus alongside of him. So the point here is not that we should become overly suspicious of everyone who disagrees with us and become, you know, the doctrine police on every word. And if somebody doesn't line up on every issue of doctrine, we're, oh, maybe they're a false prophet. That's not the idea here, okay? Because we can run into that to our own error too. Okay? The idea here is not that we should become overly suspicious of everyone who disagrees with us, but that we should pay attention and be able to discern and spot those things which could shipwreck the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Do you see the distinction? So he describes them as hidden reefs, which could bring destruction and devastation. Number two, he describes them as selfish Shepherds, Say that five times real fast. Selfish shepherds. Uh, Let me read verse 12 again to you. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Shepherds feeding themselves. The Greek literally says shepherding themselves. So the duty of leaders within the church is to shepherd the flock of God. That is to tend and feed and care for and guide the people of God into the things of God. Not to follow them, but to follow Jesus, right? Jesus who is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, okay? So every church leader of every local church everywhere is at best an under-shepherd to the true shepherd, right? Now, Jesus Christ is your shepherd, okay? Every, Every leader, true leader, anointed, called leader, of any local church anywhere is is supposed to function as an under-shepherd. That is, someone who who, who tends and feeds and cares for and guides the flock of God into the things of God, into following the good shepherd. But the false shepherd cares more for himself than for the sheep within his care. He's selfish and motivated by self-gratification. In contrast, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd, and listen to this, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Old Testament describes the selfish shepherd, and God has very strong feelings about selfish shepherds. Look at Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 10. Says the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. 
The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord. Surely, because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And so we see God himself here taking very personally the, the way in which his sheep are cared for. And it says here, Jude points to, to this idea and says that God himself will judge these selfish shepherds. He says, so these people that have crept into the church and are teaching things and drawing a little following off to themselves, they are selfish shepherds and they're doing it for their own advantage and their own gain. They're using people for that. He says, God will directly deal with those selfish shepherds. Jude's point is clear. Those who spread false teaching without feeling any responsibility for the welfare of anyone except for themselves stand condemned. That's heavy. Third, he describes them as waterless clouds. Waterless clouds. Verse 12, let me read it again. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Now, imagine you're in ancient Palestine, okay? There were times in Palestine when people would pray for rain. And sometimes a cloud, now imagine this, you're in ancient Palestine, you're praying for rain. And sometimes then a cloud might pass across the sky, bringing with it the promise of rain. It looks like it's going to rain, Okay? But then it would be blown away by the wind without ever releasing a drop of rain. Imagine you were in a severe drought. Rain would mean what? Life and nourishment and relief. I, I got an email. There's a young girl that we sponsor through Compassion International. And she's in, in uh, Uganda. I got an email saying, pray for... Um, pray for that region. You know, they've experienced a severe drought. Uh, they've been, been experiencing a severe drought and it hasn't let up. It's causing widespread health concerns and failed crops and food shortages. So I've been praying for that. But now imagine you're in that condition. Imagine that's your situation. You're desperate for rain. And then the sky gets cloudy. And there's hope. But then the breeze just blows those clouds away without them ever giving any rain. That's a strong image. A waterless cloud is a cruel thing to those who are dying of thirst. 
And Jude says, these people are like that. They're promising rain to thirsty people, but rain will never fall. The rain that they promise is not coming. The words that they're speaking, the promises that they're making, they're never going to actually come to pass. That's a cruel thing. Number four, he describes them as fruitless trees. Fruitless trees. Let me read verse 12 again. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds. And then he says, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Whoa, like I never want to be described that way. You are a fruitless tree in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Awesome, that doesn't sound like a healthy tree, right? What is this whole in late autumn business? Well, that's basically saying in harvest time. So when they should be fruitful, when these trees should be bearing fruit, there is no fruit on them. They are fruitless at harvest time. So in any harvest time, there would periodically be trees which looked as if they were heavy with fruit. They give the appearance of being fruitful, but when the time came to gather from them, a closer inspection revealed that they had given no fruit at all. It actually produced no fruit. They just appeared to be fruitful. But when you went to actually gather that nourishment from them, there was no fruit there. And he says, these false prophets who have crept into the church are like that. So these two phrases, waterless clouds and fruitless trees, they go together because they both describe people who make great claims or who appear to be beneficial but are essentially useless. The cloud comes and it carries the promise of rain, but essentially it's useless. It never drops rain. The tree looks heavy with fruit, but when you go to gather from it, there's no fruit on it. It's essentially useless. So it's promising great things. It appears to have answers, appears to have provision, and yet it leaves you hungry. There's a significant um, story in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark where Jesus curses a tree for appearing to be fruitful without having any fruit. So a lot of people read the story because it says it wasn't the season for figs, but this tree had given leaves and all this stuff. And, and Jesus went to go gather from it and there was nothing on it. And so he cursed the tree. And a lot of people have said, you know, well, that was really crazy. Why would Jesus curse a tree that didn't give fruit when it wasn't even the season for fruit? And the point of the story was that it appeared to be, this thing gave leaves before it uh, gave fruit. So it was like, it appeared to be a fruitful tree. It was acting like it was fruitful. It was, it, was, it was giving the appearance of being fruitful without actually having any fruit. And so when it appeared to be fruitful but actually had no fruit, Jesus was like, that's a cursed tree. That's a cursed tree. So this is a significant warning for those who promise or teach things that will ultimately prove to be fruitless. You see that? He, then he calls these trees twice dead. He says, these trees are fruitless in late autumn, twice dead. Like, what? whoa, what is that? Like, you're not just dead, you're twice dead. What is that? So, three kind of possibilities here, okay? And maybe all of them are true. This could be an intensive form of language, meaning just thoroughly dead. You're not just dead, you're twice dead. Like, you're, you're super dead, buddy. Like, right? <laughs> so, it could be just meant to be like that. It could be like, this is an intensive form of the language is just saying, you are dead, dead. <laughs> right? Or it could mean... Twice dead could mean dead in the branches and in the root. That is, the branches aren't producing fruit, but the root is also rotten. It's dead, it's thoroughly dead, because it's dead to the root. And that's why I would say maybe uprooted, 
The root is bad, too. It's not just the branch is not producing fruit. It's that the root of these teachings is, is death. Right? So I think both of those, certainly. Um, or it could be an allusion to the fact that these people will not only die physically, but spiritually as well. So we covered this a few weeks ago, but Scripture tells us that we must be born again. That is, we must be born physically, and we must be born spiritually. Okay? So Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus is like, how do I, how am I born again? How can I be born? Can I enter my mother's womb a second time and be born again? That seems a little awkward and uncomfortable and impossible. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. What is born of the flesh is flesh, but what is born of the spirit is spirit. He's saying, you were born, you are physically alive, but your spirit is dead and needs to be born. We need to pass from death to life. Okay? So we need to be born physically, and we all were since we're sitting here, and we need to be born spiritually, okay, by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be born again. You say, oh, it's a born-again Christian. That's what we're talking about. John chapter 3, okay? Now, it's been said, let's track with this, because this is an interesting saying. It's been said that those who are born only once will die twice. But those who are born twice will die only once. So if you're born just once, born just physically, but never born spiritually, you will die physically and spiritually. Born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you're born physically and spiritually, you only die once. You die physically, but spiritually you live on for eternity. So when he says twice dead, he could be referring to the fact that these people are not, are not Christians at all. They claim to be Christians, they claim to be teaching Christ-like things, and they're using the name of Jesus, and they're pointing to scriptures, but they're twice dead. They're physically and spiritually dead. And so they're dead to the root. And the things that they teach, though they promise fruit, they're fruitless, and the branch is fruitless, and the root is dead. It's uprooted. That's heavy. Whatever Jude's intent is here, and maybe it's all of the above, the point remains... False teaching promises life, but it brings death. It promises fruitfulness and nourishment, but it leaves you starving. It promises rain, but it leaves you dying of thirst. That's what Jude is getting at with all of these analogies. He's saying they're coming in and they're promising great things. They're looking like rain-filled clouds and they're looking like fruitful trees, but they're never going to drop an ounce of nourishing rain. They're never going to provide one nourishing fruit. They're dead in the root. They can't help you. Heavy, heavy description. Number five, he describes them as wild waves. Wild waves. Let me read verse 13. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wild is what it sounds like. Just untamed, ungovernable, boisterous. There is a rebellious spirit to these false prophets. They are wild and refuse to submit to the authority of Jesus and to the word of God. They're going to be the masters of their own destiny. They're going to control. They're going to decide. They're, they're not going to submit to the authority of God and his word. They're wild. That's what he's saying. They're like wild waves, ungovernable. But he says this, they're like waves casting up the foam of their own shame. And so the picture here is that for all of their noise and motion, there's nothing to show for it except for shameful things. William McDonald says, 
They glory in what they should be ashamed of and leave nothing of substance and value behind. They glory in things that they should be ashamed of. Have you ever seen that? Celebrating things that are shameful. William Barclay, I want to read this excerpt because he goes on an interesting description of this phrase in his commentary here. He says this. The picture is this. After a storm, when the waves have been lashing the shore with their frothing spray and their foam, there's always left on the shore a fringe of seaweed and driftwood and all kinds of unsightly litter from the sea. That's always an unattractive scene. But in the case of one sea, it is grimmer than in any other. The waters of the Dead Sea can be whipped up into waves, and these waves, too, cast up driftwood on the shore. But in this instance, there is a unique circumstance. The waters of the Dead Sea are so impregnated with salt that they strip the bark from any driftwood in them. And when such wood is cast up on the shore, it gleams bleak and white, more like dried bones than wood. The deeds of the wicked are like the useless and unsightly litter which the waves leave scattered on the beach after a storm and which resemble the skeleton-like relics of dead sea storms. The picture vividly portrays the ugliness of the deeds of Jude's opponents. That's a heavy description, but it's, that's the picture Jude is getting at. He's, he's saying there are these wild waves, but all they're bringing up on the shore is dead driftwood. It's useless to you. The only thing, so they don't produce rain and they don't produce fruit, but they produce a lot of garbage that's useless to you. They look like they're going to drop rain. They look like they're going to produce fruit. Man, that sea is sure moving and making a lot of noise, but ultimately it's not leaving anything beneficial behind, just trash. Number six, they're described as wandering stars. Wandering stars. So verse 13 again says, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. And look at this. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Wow. So since ancient times, people have been able to track seasons and navigate direction by the stars, right? There's still a fairly, like it's a good, you know, I'm not a sailor. I'm not a, a guy that goes out on the ocean, but you can still navigate your way by the stars, Right? You can still, I mean, if you knew how, you can be taught to navigate your direction by the stars, to tell seasons by those things too. A wandering star is, wandering stars are these celestial bodies that don't move in regular orbit, so they're worthless as navigational aids. They're not fixed. They don't move in a regular orbit or predictable orbit, so you can't use them to, to guide yourself. You can't use them for navigation or direction. What an appropriate description of false teachers. William McDonald again, he says this, it is impossible to get spiritual direction from these religious meteors, falling stars and comets who blaze brightly for a moment, then fizzle out into darkness like fireworks. He says, don't set the course of your life based on these people. Don't try to navigate your way through life based on a wandering star. If you're trying to get from A to B based on a meteor, it may be flashy, it may look impressive, but it is useless to guide your life. And that's what he's saying about these people. So 
He's telling us that although these false teachers may be burning brightly for the moment, they're useless for direction and will ultimately, though they're burning brightly now, will ultimately experience, he says here, the gloom of utter darkness forever. Seventh, he describes them as simply ungodly sinners. Ungodly sinners. Verses 14 through 16. It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Verse 15 uses some variation of the word ungodly at least four times. We caught that? It's correct. Look at, let me read it again. He comes to execute judgment and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. One verse, some variation of the word ungodly, four times. He says, he's saying the people are ungodly, their deeds are ungodly, the manner in which they perform those deeds is ungodly, and the words they speak are godly, ungodly. This is important because they're claiming to be godly. The reason this matters is because they're claiming, oh yeah, I'm godly, I'm, I follow Jesus, I love God, blah, 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 blah. They're claiming godliness, but he drives home the point four times in one verse that they, though they claim to be godly, they are ungodly. And their deeds are ungodly, and the manner in which they perform those deeds is ungodly, and the words that they speak are ungodly. That's heavy. And then it goes on to describe them, kind of their character. How does that manifest itself? It describes that in verse 16. He says they are grumblers. And malcontents. What is, what is that? What's a malcontent? Grump, grumblers and malcontents. That is never content with the life that God has allotted to them, but always grumbling and complaining about their lot in life. They got a problem for every solution, always finding something to complain about. Right? I was pierced by some of this. My wife teases me all the time, like, I'm a, I'm a negative Nancy a lot of times. Like, I'm just, she's like, glass is half full of everything, you know? Like, my dog died. She's like, at least we had the joy of a dog for sitting. No, like, she comes up with anything, you know? It's like this positive, she's optimistic. And I love it. It's good, you know? But in the moment, sometimes I'm like, just be negative with me. Like, just, you know? Like, just complain with me. Just go, yeah, it does suck, you know? Like, something. But, uh... But then I'm reading stuff like this, and he's like, it's like it's ungodly to be a grumbler, to be malcontent, you know? A monk, I'm going to tell you a joke, okay? Because it's funny, I like it. It's silly, but whatever. My wife's all into these, uh, what do they call them, dad jokes right now? Oh, she's got a hundred for you, so don't get out the door without asking her for one, okay? <clears throat> so this is my version. Anyways, a monk joined a monastery and took a vow of silence. And after the first 10 years, his superior called him in and asked, do you have anything to say? And the monk replied with two words, food bad. And after another 10 years, the monk again had opportunity to voice his thoughts, and he said, bed hard. Another 10 years went by, and again he was called in before his superior. When asked if he had anything to say, he said, I quit. And his superior said, well, that doesn't surprise me a bit. You've done nothing but complain ever since you got here. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> the point is we all know those people and I am too often that person that's like no matter what you situation you present me at, it's like you, they can find the negative in it. No matter what good is happening, what there is to be thankful for, they can find the thing to gripe and complain about. They're malcontent. Grumblers and malcontents, he says. Be careful if you always have a complaint. Do some heart checking. We should have much more gratitude than we ever have complaint. Not that we can't have them, not that we should. We're told to bring those before the Lord, okay? And we should do that. But I should be bringing to God and to people much more gratitude and thanksgiving and joy than I am grumbling and complaint and malcontent, malcontented speech. It says they follow their own sinful desires. So that is what? It says they live just like unbelievers. They just follow their sinful desires like anyone without the Holy Spirit of God inside them. They're living to please themselves and satisfy the flesh. He says, so pay attention to these false prophets. They're speaking of God's grace and they're speaking of these things. They're speaking of that, but they're living just like everyone else. Pay attention to that. Pay attention to that. If someone's teaching you the things of God and living like the rest of the world, pay attention to that, he's saying. And then he says they're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. There's kind of two things happening here. There's boasting. So these people will talk themselves up to impress others, okay? Around the right people, they just talk themselves up. They always got a great hero story about themselves, making themselves look good. He says, and then it says showing favoritism to gain advantage. So they'll talk themselves up or they'll flatter other people whom they think are important, right? And they do both of those to make themselves look good and to, to get personal advantage, so when the situation presents itself correctly, I will talk myself up and, and, and make myself look great. And when it's more advantageous to do so, I will talk someone else up and flatter them if I think that's going to give me some kind of advantage. Just be careful. Watch out for people who use their words that way, who speak, to always talk highly of themselves, or always are flattering important people. Be careful because there's an agenda there. There's something going on. And so what an intense description we have here of these false teachers. They're described as hidden reefs, selfish shepherds, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, wandering stars, and ungodly sinners. Not a flattering depiction. And we're told that judgment is coming for them. Verse 14 and 15 just goes on. He's actually quoting from the book of First Enoch. We've already discussed how Jude and his readers would have been very familiar with that book and they would have held it in high regard. And so he quotes it here just to emphasize the fact that these people are, will experience judgment, that God will not treat this lightly. He says it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness. And he goes on and on. He's saying these people who have crept into the church. This is for the church age. This is not Old Testament for somebody else or some other thing that doesn't apply today. This is not old ceremonial law or whatever. This is something he says for today, those who have crept into the church today, he says, this is the one that is prophesied about that God will come to execute judgment on these. So we need to heed that warning. So emphasizing the fact, verse 15, he says, to execute judgment on all. And that might terrify us if we don't know the gospel. 
So if I, again, I say this all the time, but if I leave you right there, period, let's pray, end of the day, I've sentenced us to condemnation because you may have seen yourself in some of the other descriptions, but you certainly saw yourself, because I did, in, in the seventh one, ungodly sinners. Because it says, all have sinned. Scripture says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so in this passage where it's talking about he's coming to execute judgment on all, all who? All of the ungodly. But here's what we have to get. You go, oh, huh. I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, okay, now there's condemnation. Now there's fear. Now there's shame. True children of God will not be included in that judgment. We can say that confidently. Through faith in Jesus Christ, every true believer has been granted immunity from that judgment. I could give you tons of verses. I'm gonna give you just one, just to, just to, just to settle you. John chapter five, verse 24 says this. Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, Emphasize twice, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Do you see the good news in this? Yes, it is actually good news that God is going to bring judgment because every time your heart has cried for justice, you cannot have justice without judgment. So when you look at the injustice in the world and you go, God, do what? Do something about that. The scripture says, yeah, it's happening. It's going to happen. Now, now, God will come and he will execute judgment. Judah saying, he will come and execute judgment on all the ungodly. That is all who have not repented and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because for those who have, Jesus himself said, he or she does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So the joy for us is in knowing that God will right every wrong. And yet... The, the, the punishment that I deserve doesn't fall on me because it's fallen on Christ. And the warning and admonition to every false teacher who has crept into the church is this. Repent. Repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ and follow him and submit to his authority. And you will not come into judgment. And maybe let's pray that God would grant not just our own hearts repentance, but the hearts of every false teacher who's ever crept into the church in this age, who's still breathing, who's still alive, who's still here and now, who's still spreading false teaching, that God would grant them the grace of repentance. Let's pray for that, that God would grab a hold of their heart and they would repent and turn to him so they would not experience the judgment of God that, that Jude says is coming on all those who have infiltrated the church and are spreading false teaching. And we would pray that, they, that God would save them and use them to preach truth and life and grace and hope, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, hear the word of God. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will not come into judgment, but you will pass from death to life. Amen.